So I'm continuing my series today on mental health and faith and begin by asking the question, what if mental illness was a threshold for growth in faith and one of the most significant opportunities to meet Jesus? So this reflection today unpacks that opportunity. Uh, As I said, it's part of a series I'm doing on mental health and faith. Um, If you go to my blog, you can find the whole series under the tag Equanimity. Um, Today's reflection is about the first steps. It's it's practical in some ways. It's about the first steps for getting help with mental illness. But it's also about how those first steps are not due to a lack of faith, uh, which is often what we fear with mental illness, but actually are the first steps of faith um, and the most important confession of faith to learn to make, to be vulnerable and open. Uh, And I guess I posed the question at the beginning of this, what if one of the first steps in mental health and faith was a confession, an admission that is not a lack of faith but would be one of the most incredible acts of faith to be able to admit to others I'm not coping. It seems obvious now that I needed to see a doctor and get help but I didn't. I was in part confused and like many people avoiding the interventions I needed and things got much worse before they started to get better. Early on, I mistook my, what were, panic attacks for a heart attack, as many sufferers do. Shortness of breath, pain in my chest, sweating, racing heartbeat, dizziness. I found myself at the hospital and in the accident and emergency, um, hoping it was a heart problem, because then I'd have an explanation and a reason for what was happening to me. But after investigations, I was informed that my heart was fine, and this happened several times. Now, in 1999, the internet wasn't like it is now, replete with an abundance of advice and support. But I did manage some research, and I started to realise that something else was wrong with me. Eventually, I went to my family doctor. But unfortunately, this just made things worse. Now, doctors are amazing, but a few can be lacking in understanding when it comes to mental health. On hearing my symptoms, uh, my doctor gave me some advice. You have many responsibilities, Mr. Clark. Three young children, a wife, a demanding job. And then she said this, you will need to pull yourself together. Now, those words nearly triggered a panic attack that I only managed to stave off until I reached my car outside. I didn't need reminding of my responsibilities. It was those that were overwhelming me. It took all the courage I could muster to get a second opinion. So I transferred to a doctor who was a member of our church. Going to see him to be vulnerable again and share what I was experiencing was petrifying. What if he told me to pull myself together too? But he listened to me, he was kind and gracious, and then explained that I'd been having what sounded like panic attacks and anxiety. This diagnosis was blindingly obvious looking back, but panic attacks were something I had no experience or knowledge of. So this wonderful doctor prescribed me some medication and he referred me to a psychiatrist. Now, by now, my symptoms were so pervasive and so persistent that I meekly went to my first appointment with the psychiatrist. Back then, I didn't really understand what a psychiatrist was or did. 
But I quickly learned that they're trained as hospital doctors first, and then they specialize in all things psychiatric. They map your physical, environmental, mental conditions, diagnosing and dispensing medications and therapies. Vows made to be broken. Now, by now, I knew I needed the help being offered to me. All my self-protection barriers were overwhelmed by my daily distress and the impact I feared it was now having on my family. And after many questions from the psychiatrist, I was diagnosed with, oh, these are all a mouthful, these things, aren't they? These technical terms, anxiety-induced depression and general anxiety disorder. And what that means is it was explained to me how prolonged stress had affected my brain's ability to transmit signals and that there were medications that could help me. But I also saw something about my family. There was a familial pattern traced by my psychiatrist questions that showed the substance abuse, mostly alcohol, within my family tree, parents, grandparents, siblings. I also saw where instead of drinking, my drug of choice had been overworking. I was starting to find out, there were, I was starting to find some understanding of what was happening to me and why. I'd watched my parents, both work shy, capricious, and I had made childhood vows to not be like them. As a child, I made so many vows just to survive, vows that once protected me that would then hurt me later in life, as they were doing at this point when I was seeing the psychiatrist. Trying not to be like someone is pathological. It's a negative orientation of what you don't want to be instead of a positive life-giving orientation. And my vows of protection in childhood left me navigating life by the most pessimistic measures. As long as I am not this or that like my parents, which I disdained. Now, a pathologist can tell you what killed someone, but they're not able to, well, they probably could, but they're by training, they're not someone you go to to tell you what's life creating. Now, my childhood resolutions to work had served me well in many ways, better overwork than drugs and alcohol, but with no parental or any other support, what it did was it gave me an orientation towards life where I'd had to work my way through my theology degree. Um, I had taken multiple part-time jobs, sleeping on various friends' floors. Uh, and the, I was the first person in my family I knew had got a degree. And then I got married. But the, the pressure and the lack behind me continued to weigh on me for work. And things like a deposit on a rental home or getting a car for work were like scaling an impossibly steep mountain. And I had to climb hard and high for a very, very long time. And it seemed like an endless bootstrapping into every aspect of making a life, a life where hard and extra work was required. I've often wondered what I would have been like. What would I be like now? Who I might have become with a bit more love, care and provision when I was growing up. As I say, these important childhood survival skills had now become, I was starting to realise, a pathological straitjacket that weren't protecting me but actually were causing me harm. So, for instance, I realised I didn't know when to stop working. Being bivocational in my late 20s had tapped into my ability to overwork. So here was someone 
with a disposition to working too much who becomes bivocational. It, it was a catastrophe waiting to happen. I eventually could get high on work. I got a buzz after working for many hours, many days in a row, and there'd be a little voice in my head telling me that I was being lazy. And that was the part of me that was terrified of being like my parents. Underneath it all was one of my greatest fears that God wanted to deal with, of being abandoned. My parents couldn't be trusted to protect and provide, so I was going to have to care for myself by working harder and harder. Now, yet now here I was, laid low from work by my overwork and my mental health. I managed to get up in the mornings at this point to be with my kids. I opened the post and then I went back to bed once they were at school and I hoped they could avoid seeing the worst of my condition. I get up later in the day to be present with them when they returned home and I managed to speak and preach on Sundays somehow. In between, everything else had become a bit of a blur with panic attacks and crippling depression. Let's talk about depression. When I woke up in the mornings... Despair like a black cloud covered everything. The only way to get up was to measure myself on a scale of 1 to 10. I don't know where I got this idea from. 10 would be very good and 1 would be the worst. So I would open my eyes. How am I? Gloom and despair would be sucking me into the bed like the gravity of a black hole. So, oh, a 1. My only and next goal was then to get into the shower and ask myself, how was I doing? Ah, a 2. Well, that's better than a 1. My next goal was to get dressed, see my kids off to school, drink a coffee, and ask myself again how I was doing. Maybe a three. Well, that's better than a two. Time to open the post. And the worst days at this point were lived in a gruelling one out of ten all day. Depression is hard to explain to those who've never suffered it. So imagine every moment you felt down and overwhelmed, every moment of despair and anguish, add all those together, multiply them by 100, now have all of those settle over your mind and your soul. Sleep is the only place to escape this sucking more of depression. Unconsciousness was a kind of respite from the deep sadness and desolation that depression brings. I was unable to look a day ahead instead of living and in, instead I was living and navigating life hour by hour. As things got a little better, my day began to be lived in thirds, morning, afternoon, evening. And you know what? It took many months before I could live even a day at a time, let alone a day ahead. And the strange thing was that during this period when I was the weakest and unable to cope, our small church plant grew. It was a lesson a workaholic needed to learn. And you'd think I would have taken it on board in full then. But it would take many more years to break the back of my coping mechanism from overwork. Many life lessons need to be repeated for God to bring us back to them, to receive the next level of understanding and healing he has for us. It also began to dawn on me how being a workaholic was relatively socially acceptable as an addiction, especially in church leadership. The drug of overwork. Now, most church leaders I know work too hard too often. Church leadership was a perfect environment for my addiction to grow over the years. I and others had mistaken my dramatic conversion experience and some deep inner healing that I received when I first became a Christian as me being mature in my faith. My maturity as a young Christian came in part from growing up too quickly 
and taking on the role of a hardworking adult long before I should have. Now, when pastoring and meeting someone unusually mature for their age, I ask questions to determine what childhood lack they might have had. Now, we're more used to thinking of people who've suffered when young as correlating with destructive behaviours later in life. But manifestations of lack can go the other way into being overly responsible and overworking, which ultimately also becomes destructive. Now, in all these appointments with doctors and medical professionals, I learned something that I've carried into pastoral care for others suffering from similar mental illness. That when you're not coping, when your condition causes life to break down, it's time to go and see a doctor. A doctor's a good place to begin. Seeing your family doctor is often the first step over the threshold for the initial level of support and help that you need. Yet it's strange when you go to a doctor in that first meeting needing them to ask you how you are and for you to tell them how you're doing. The habitual niceties of social exchange can often take over. Your doctor says hello, they ask you how you are, you reflexively say good, which you're not, and then we sit there unable to describe what has really been happening to us. And it's what I'm trying to do in these reflections. Walk all the way into what I've suffered so that you can walk into yours. And there we sit with the doctor. How do we begin to walk into what we're really suffering and tell someone else how we've been feeling and thinking. Taking what's been happening and sharing those things with anyone is difficult, let alone a doctor, but it's a good place to start. Firstly, we're not likely to comprehend what's been happening to us most of the time. So how do we explain what we don't understand ourselves and where do we start when we don't know ourselves where the beginning of what we suffer is it can all seem so silly in the light of day with your doctor in front of you to describe what things have been like in your bed your body your head late at night and in the early hours of the morning i'm not coping the greatest confession of faith Many people have told me that they can't explain what's happening to them when they go and see their doctor and and they leave unaided. So there's one phrase I encourage them to use if it fits their symptoms, and it's this. I am not coping. It's an admission at every level. It allows the doctor to say, how are you not coping? Where are you not coping? And to lean into that place that's so difficult to go to. To admit the physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual places that we're not coping. Our doctors can ask us and we can share, even if it's the beginning of it, what's really been happening. Now, I've also advised people to take their partners with them unless their partners are part of their presenting problems. Because it means then you've got someone there who can help explain to the doctor what's really happening. It takes courage to say those words, I'm not coping. It is an act of faith, like the psalmist to declare to someone else how we're struggling. Psalm 73, my flesh and heart have failed. The most honest acts of faith do not deny our struggles as we admit them to others. Since Adam and Eve, human beings have been hiding from God and each other. To open up about our inner life can feel like denuding ourselves, becoming exposed, weak and vulnerable. Some of us have played at sharing by referring to our circumstances, the things around us, but not the things within us. 
It's much safer to talk about work pressure, finances, other people's behaviours than to share our responses to those things that have happened to us. One of the reasons mental illness occurs is from a lack of sharing, not telling others what has been happening to us and then also within us. We are too often like the creatures in Narnia and the lion, the witch and the wardrobe turned to stone. We are petrified of disclosing our inner world, worried that something worse might happen to us if we do share. We talk about dying, it's a phrase, isn't it? Dying of embarrassment and shame, as if the act of being vulnerable will cause death. And the truth is, death is needed. We do need to die. The truth is that all healing for Christians, including mental health, comes through death. That place where you do not want to share, where you feel, you can feel inside you a resistance to opening up, that is the very place where something in you needs to die. Such dying will open up a path to resurrection life. I'm not coping is a confession of faith that breaks the spell that has turned us to stone. If we're going to get better, we have to open our mouths and connect our inner worlds with an out loud expression of what ails us. So if we access medical help by talking and asking for help, a second and equally challenging step for us involves therapy and talking. But that'll be the next post. So uh, thank you for listening. Um, If you want to catch more of these articles and podcasts, everything is on my website, jasonswanclark.org. That's jasonswanclark.org all one word noeonclark.org and uh, on there you'll be able to subscribe to uh, an email newsletter um, to push updates to you for new articles um, and all the recordings also you can subscribe to this audio podcast in Spotify SoundCloud and iTunes and wherever else you catch your podcast from um, and lastly thank you for listening and if you found this helpful please like and do share with others.